Well, happy Sunday to you. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving and your Friendsgivings and your Black Friday. And I hope you're preparing to enjoy your Cyber Monday. So many holidays all at once this time of year, right? Um, my, my family uh, enjoyed a day on Thursday, uh, just a small gathering, and then we made a quick trip to Iowa to see some other family members uh, on Friday and Saturday, and came home last night and woke up this morning uh, to the site of a winter wonderland, which is beautiful, and I'm glad to be here with you with Bibles open, and I do want to invite you to keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 19. Um, we live in a world, um, you know, in, on this Sunday in between uh, these great holidays of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Um, we're very aware that we live in a consumeristic society. Some of you may gasp and say, how dare you? But it's the truth, isn't it? We live in a society that loves buying and buying and buying and buying. And if you've been buying and buying and buying and buying, I'm only sort of trying to make you feel guilty for that. I'm joking. Um, but, uh, but, but we're very aware. We live in this consumeristic society that is full of slogans and mottos that are designed to drag you in and to keep you a part of the culture of buying more stuff branded in a certain way. Nike has their slogan. What is Nike's slogan? Just do it. How about Red Bull? Do you know what that one is? Wow, you guys are good. KFC? Finger licking good. One of the best ever. Um, not only companies have their mottos and slogans, uh, superheroes. Does somebody know Spider-Man's motto? With great re- power comes great responsibility. You guys are demonstrating this for me so well. Mottos and slogans have this way of connecting deep within. We have a few people here who have served in armed forces. Uh, U.S. Marines, Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Uh, the United States Army may not use this one anymore, but they should because it's so iconic. Be all that you can be in the army, right? The United States, I understand if the internet is correct, has its own motto, e pluribus unum, out of many a union or out of many one. And I'd hate to suggest that Jesus was into marketing. I'd hate to suggest that. It seems to cheapen what our Lord Jesus Christ was in this world doing to suggest that. But if the ministry of Jesus wanted to have a motto or a slogan, the motto or slogan that Jesus would have chosen may well have related to what we heard in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, something that Jesus himself repeats over and over again in the Gospels. This idea that the last shall be first and the first last. It shows up not only here in Matthew 19.30, but just around the corner in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. Jesus will repeat this motto again. The last will be first and the first last. Sometimes Jesus says it in slightly different words. For example, in Matthew chapter 23.12, we'll hear Jesus say it like this. Whoever exalts himself 
will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or there's the way that the early church seems to have enjoyed repeating it themselves. It shows up multiple times as a direct quote in the New Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, here is this idea which shows up repeatedly, almost like a motto, almost like a slogan in the ministry of Jesus. The first shall be last. And good news, the last shall be first. This shows up frequently like a motto, but that raises an important question. What does this mean, right? It doesn't do us a whole lot of good to memorize these words if we don't understand what they mean. So what does it mean that the first shall be last? Here in this passage that Jill read a moment ago, we get three scenes, three very concise stories. None of them are longer than a YouTube short. Three short stories, three scenes that spotlight, each of which will spotlight something of the immeasurable importance of this motto of the kingdom of heaven, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So let's pay attention to each of these scenes and see how they help us understand what this motto means. Scene number one is a scene about Jesus and the kids. You're familiar with it. Jesus has been healing many people going back to the beginning of chapter 19. He has been interacting with the Pharisees and religious leaders going back to chapter 19 verses 3 through 12. And then somebody comes into the crowd with a group of kids. Kids, why don't you go up and meet Jesus? Jesus, would you pray for the kids? And you know what the disciples famously do. One of the reasons that we feel that we can trust the authenticity of the gospel accounts is that the people who wrote them put themselves in such bad light over and over again. And so here is Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, saying, I remember well that time when people were bringing kids to Jesus and we got in their way and said, no, Jesus has important things to do. Don't let the kids come near him. But how does Jesus respond to this assumption? And by the way, before I go there, what the disciples are doing made sense in the world of the first century. Because in the world of the first century, people didn't think children are the most important people in the households. In fact, if you listed out the ranking in this honor-shame culture, if you listed out the ranking of the most honored people in a household, kids would be pretty close to the bottom of the list. And so it makes sense that the disciples of Jesus see Jesus interacting with adults. Moreover, they see Jesus interacting with important-looking religious adults, Pharisees. And then along come these low-ranking people, the kids. And the disciples do something that would have made sense to most of the crowds looking on. They say Jesus has important things to do. He doesn't have time for the kids right now. 
I wonder how many of us share the mindset of Jesus' disciples there in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Jesus has important stuff to do. He shouldn't be bothered by the little ones. But of course, Jesus doesn't view it that way. Immediately, Jesus rebukes his disciples. His disciples are rebuking people for bringing kids near in verse 13. But then Jesus rebukes them and says, no, let the kids come to me and do not hinder them. And then hear this, hear this declaration of the honor that Jesus has for those who are not viewed in honor by the culture around them. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? Because for such For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. Blessing them. Healing them. Demonstrating his love, his concern, his esteem for them. Now we talked about this a little while ago. What is it about kids that brings such a smile to Jesus' face and brings such honoring words out of his mouth over and over when he sees children. I suspect that a great part of it is simply this. Kids need everything. Kids are needy. They're dependent. Everything that a child has is a gift. Kids don't Kids don't receive a meal from their parents and instinctively say, how much do I owe you for that? How much should I contribute for groceries this week? See, kids aren't in, kids don't live in a mindset that says, if I'm going to receive something, then probably I can pay something. Kids are just the opposite. They're needy. They're dependent. They have nothing to offer in one sense. They simply receive as gifts of love everything in their lives. And I think there's something to this neediness, this dependence, this habit of simply receiving. I think there's something to this that leads Jesus over and over in the Gospels to look at children and say, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To those who recognize I'm needy. To those who recognize I'm dependent. To those who simply receive gifts from outside of themselves. And instead of trying to bargain for it or pay for it. Or find some way to achieve it on their own. They simply on their best days say thanks. Kids receive. They're needy. They're dependent. They're receivers of gifts. And because of that, Jesus looks at these kids and he not only says they're allowed to come near, he holds them up in a place of honor and says, as he says elsewhere, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then become like a kid. Recognize your neediness. Recognize your dependence. Receive as a gift whatever you need from the Father above. You see, here in scene one, The kids are brought to Jesus and Jesus' message to them quite simply is this. His message to the kids, come. You find yourself needy? You find yourself not being able to accomplish or achieve what you want? Jesus says, come. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
But that brings us to a second scene here. A scene in which Jesus interacts with a rich guy. And this rich guy is a fascinating character who shows up in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, and Mark's Gospel. Each of the Gospel authors gives us a slightly different bit of information about him, but all the pieces fit together. All three Gospels tell us that this, this fella is rich. He's loaded. He's got great possessions, as it says in Matthew 19.22. He's not only rich, but according to Matthew, he's a young guy. He's young and wealthy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he's described as a ruler. A ruler of what? We don't know for sure, but probably a ruler in a Jewish synagogue. A leader in religious contexts. In other words, he's not only rich and young And influential, he's spiritually minded, which we see by the kinds of questions he brings to Jesus. He has sincere questions about things like eternal life and the Ten Commandments. He's smart and he's a really good, moral, upstanding guy. He can say that he hasn't broken any of the commandments, at least the way that the Pharisees would describe breaking the commandments. And he's interested in Jesus Girls, wouldn't we say this fella is a catch? (laughs) He's rich, he's young, he's influential, he's spiritually minded, he's a morally upstanding guy. He appreciates Jesus' teaching. Look, if your daughter or your granddaughter or your niece brings home a dude like this for Thanksgiving, everybody is patting her on the shoulder saying, wow, we appreciate this guy, he's a keeper. Yet as he stands in front of Jesus, it becomes more and more apparent that there's something he still lacks. He comes to Jesus and asks this question, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus gives him An answer about goodness. You ask me about what is good. There's only one who's good. Referring to God above. And Jesus then turns from talking about what goodness is. There's only one who's truly good. To talking about following the commands of scripture themselves. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, which commandments? The fellow asks. Jesus begins to list some of the ten commandments. Shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, oh, and honor your father and mother. It's interesting, there are ten, ten commandments. That's why we call them ten commandments. And sometimes we break them into what we call two tables. The first four commandments, which has to do with one's relationship with God. And then the next five commandments, or the next six commandments, which all have to do with one's relationship with, uh, with our neighbor. So loving God, the first four commandments. Loving your neighbor, the next commandments. 
It's interesting that Jesus kind of skips over the first four. And he goes right to the commandments about how to love your neighbor. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then he goes to Leviticus chapter 19 and provides a summary of these commands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we as Christians call the second great commandment. And it's interesting, Jesus skips over the first few. And he doesn't name the last of the Ten Commandments. We'll get back to that in a minute. But he lists these commandments about relationships with other people, perhaps to give this fella enough space to say, oh yeah, I've done those things. Yes, I haven't actually murdered somebody. I haven't stolen great sums of money. Maybe he wasn't married. Maybe he was. But one way or another, he says, by the simplest definitions, I haven't committed adultery. I've never been in court and offered a false testimony against my neighbor. And yes, there are many ways in my life in which I have loved my neighbor as myself. This guy looks at his life And he says, you know what, I really am a pretty good dude. He reminds me a lot of so many of my neighbors, right? I have a lot of neighbors who haven't committed murder by the simplest definition. They haven't stolen large sums of money. They haven't committed adultery. And in many ways, they have loved their neighbors as themselves. And Jesus gives this guy an opportunity to say, you know what, so far... That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. I'm doing great. And yet, as Jesus has invited this man to consider the ultimate standard of goodness, there's only one who's good. And as this man considers even his best resume, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. Notice where Jesus has led this man by the time we get to verse 20. Listen to this man's own words. Considering the goodness of God and considering not his worst deeds, but his best version of his resume. I've done all of those things. Notice where he lands in verse 20. The young man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Do you hear there's something going on in this guy's own heart? That he realizes, even when you give me the commands that I can say at the simplest level, I haven't broken that, I haven't broken that, I haven't broken that. There's still something in his own heart testifying to him. There's something lacking. Even my best attempts at righteousness still leave me saying, I still haven't quite found what I'm looking for. That's Bono's version, not his, but you get what I'm saying. Even his best resume leaves him saying, there still is something lacking. Jesus, what is it? Do you know what that feels like? I wonder if you realize how many people here in Aurora, people living next door to us, 
people that we work with, people that we interact with, they might say, you know, I'm living a pretty good life. And yet, if you give them a little bit of space and maybe have a conversation about God and give them space to describe to you how they're living their own life, maybe we'll discover that you don't have to scratch very far beneath the surface for our friends to say, I feel like I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm not some horrible criminal. I feel like I'm doing everything I know to do, and yet... Not far beneath the surface, there's this sense, I think I'm still lacking something. What is it? And now Jesus offers this man a hard word. He says in verse 21, if you would be perfect. That idea of perfection refers to maturity, filling up what's lacking. It's a response pretty directly to this guy's question about what he's still lacking. If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Why does Jesus go for money here? The simple answer is to say because Jesus knows this guy's heart. Jesus doesn't always interact about money. We mentioned last week the story of the woman at the well. Her thing wasn't wealth. Her thing was a series of romantic relationships. And as Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, he says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the fellow you're with now, not your husband. Jesus is identifying like a skilled surgeon that that obstacle in that woman's heart that would keep her from following him. And in a similar way, Jesus is identifying an obstacle in this rich fellow's heart. It's not because riches are the only final thing that each and every one of us will have to deal with. It's not even because every single one of us will have to liquidate all of our possessions in order to follow Jesus. Think of some of the wealthy folks identified in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea. There's a woman identified in in the Corinthian in the letters to the Corinthians Chloe and she's regarded as somebody of importance Paul talks about Chloe's household apparently Chloe in the process of following Jesus didn't liquidate all of her assets and liquidate her entire house and household in order to follow Jesus see for some like Zacchaeus another wealthy man That Jesus meets and invites to follow him. Zacchaeus has to make some reparations for what he's done wrong. For Zacchaeus, his patterns of sin require a kind of repentance that involves paying back those he has wronged financially. But for Zacchaeus, it doesn't equal all of his possessions. So why then does Jesus say to this guy, if Chloe gets to have a household, if Zacchaeus doesn't have to liquidate everything in order to repent and follow Jesus, why does Jesus say to this guy, sell all that you have in order to follow me? It's because Jesus knows who he is. 
And Jesus realizes that while this man thinks he has great possessions, Jesus sees to the core of it, actually, this man's great possessions have him. And until he can get free from the grip of those possessions on his heart, he will never actually be free. He will never actually be free to follow Jesus and live a life that is honoring to the Lord by faith. I don't know if you've ever spent time talking with an alcoholic in the middle, in the middle of a challenge, in the middle of a bottoming out kind of season. It can be a very challenging thing because perhaps you and everybody else who loves this fella can see the destructive effect of alcohol in his life. And from a theological perspective, we might even realize, you know, Jesus drank wine. It's not that wine or drinking a little bit of wine is some kind of unpardonable sin. Jesus drank wine. What's the big deal? And yet when you sit down and seek to interact with somebody for whom alcohol is the thing that's got his heart You can see how alcohol has a grip on his heart. Everybody else in the room can see how alcohol has a grip on his heart. But how do you help him see that alcohol has a grip on his heart? With man, it's impossible. Thank God, with God, all things are possible, right? And Jesus here is staging what we might call an intervention for a moneyaholic. Theologically speaking, it's not that it's wrong to have some possessions. But sometimes in ways that you might not see or that I might not see when I'm the one in the middle of the problem, it's not just that we have possessions, it's that possessions have possession of us. And Jesus stages an intervention for this fella and he says, listen, you know how you're going to find what it is that you sense is still lacking despite the fact that it seems like you've got everything? You know how you're going to find it? Sell the stuff that's got a hold of you and give it to others. And notice this, Jesus isn't just teaching him how to live an extra holy life. You notice where Jesus ends this. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and what? Come follow me. See, at the heart of Christian discipleship is not just living a moral life. Otherwise, Jesus would have to say to this guy, I think you've got it all already. At the heart of the Christian life is not even just being more radical than most. Selling more of your possessions and giving more of them away. Now, the New Testament calls all of us to generosity and to a kind of generosity that is radical to the world around us. But that's not the heart of Christianity. You know what the heart of it is? The heart of it is found in those words. Come, follow me. 
The heart of Christian discipleship is not just about living a good life. It's not just about living a radical lifestyle. It's about living in relationship with Jesus. He says, come, follow me. Sometimes Jesus, as a skilled surgeon, will cut to the heart of the matter and say, this for you is that obstacle. In order to follow me, you're going to have to let go of alcohol. It's got too much of a grip on you for you to see or hear anything else clearly. Or to the woman at the well. In order to follow me, you're going to have to let go of your addiction to romantic relationships. I know you think you are in control of it and it's what's giving you true life. But in order to find that which is truly life, you've got to let go of that and come follow me. And sometimes when Jesus does so, people let go of those idols. They turn in repentance and begin the joyful journey of following Jesus. Unfortunately, in this case, in Matthew chapter 19, it was not so. At least not at this point in this gentleman's story. This moral fella who's done so many good things in his life. Here's the call of Jesus to renounce the idol of wealth, to let go of his possessions in order to discover that which is truly life. And what does he do? Verse 22, it says, The young man heard this and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He doesn't just walk away feeling judged feeling criticized. He doesn't walk away feeling that Jesus' direction is unjust. He walks away sad. Why? Because those possessions still have too great a grip on him for him to follow Jesus and find that which is truly life. Now listen, where we are this weekend in between these great American holidays of Black Friday and Cyber Monday I wonder if this is an important opportunity for some of us to hear the teaching of Jesus and for some of us to be challenged by Jesus. Realizing realizing that even though it's okay to have a home, even though it's okay to own some clothes, even though it's okay to own a car, Maybe some of us need to step back and ask the question, do I own my possessions or do my possessions own me? And perhaps for some, we need to hear the radical teaching of Jesus. Saying we're going to need to let go of some things that we have clung to and sought life with. We need to let go of them in order to discover that which is truly life. And if you find yourself digging in and saying, no, my possessions are just fine, may I suggest to you that you sound a little bit like an alcoholic in the middle of an intervention? Maybe Jesus sees our hearts more clearly than we do. Maybe a life lived giving away is better than a life of clinging dearly to our possessions.
Jesus turns to his disciples and he turns it into a principle. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And some of us are like, Jesus, you have to be joking. In fact, that's what the disciples say in verse 25. When they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? You get the idea of the picture. I mean, the eye of a needle, a little sewing needle. I mean, I can't get a thread to go through that usually if I try. Jesus says, imagine trying to get a camel through that. That's how impossible it would be for people who are clinging to their wealth to get into the kingdom of heaven. And you say, that's a radical teaching, Jesus. Back off. We're talking about my stuff. Sound like alcoholics in the middle of an intervention, right? Possessionaholics. And like Jesus' disciples, we say, how could anybody enter the kingdom of heaven then? And we need to hear this beautiful teaching of Jesus. In verse 26, look, left to ourselves, left to ourselves, it might be impossible to let go to our addiction to romantic relationships where we think we're finding that which is truly life. And left to ourselves, it might feel like it is impossible to let go to our addiction to our possessions in which we think we have life. In fact, let me just broaden it out for a second. Maybe for you, it's not substances. It's not, it's not romantic relationships. Maybe for you, it's not even possessions. What is it for you that you would cling to so dearly that if Jesus says, come follow me and let go of that, you'd say, no, it's mine. Jesus is not calling us to let go of these things because he wants to crush us. He's letting go of these things because he truly believes that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That those who would exalt themselves and say, I've got what I need. I can buy my way into eternal life just like I can work my way into other business deals. Jesus says, you exalt yourself, you're going to get humbled. But if you would humble yourself and make yourself more poor than you need to be by giving away so many of your possessions, you know what the result will be? Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. That's why Jesus makes these dramatic claims. Because wealth is far more dangerous than most of us would imagine. And because the path of humility leads to a kind of life far greater than what any of us will ever find if we live our best life now. What does Jesus say to the rich guy? His message is this. Sell your possessions. Sell the stuff that own you. And come follow me. That brings us to a third scene we need to notice before we wrap up. It's a scene in which Jesus 
has a final conversation with his disciples. We pick up in verse 27. Then Peter says in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. And these guys had. These are the fishermen, the first disciples of Jesus who said, I will leave behind my fishing business in order to follow Jesus. Again, there are people like Joseph of Arimathea and Chloe's household who don't liquidate their possessions and end their business dealings in order to follow Jesus. Many or most of us will continue in a kind of work, working with our hands, which is something that is held in honor in the New Testament. Many of us will find ways to keep on working, to keep on earning funds that we will use not simply to build ourselves up, And to seek our own glory, but to give to others. But here is a fella in Peter who says, I actually did leave behind everything. And now I'm following you. I'm no longer in a territory where I'm near my family. I'm traveling into unknown places in the journey of following you, Jesus. Jesus, we've left everything. What will we have? Which in one sense might sound like Peter is bargaining. How much do I get out of this? Or in another sense, it might be a real question. Jesus, we tried this leave everything behind business. And look how far it's got us. So far, the net has all been negative. So far, following you has been more cost at least by the way any worldly standards would work. We've left a bunch of stuff. What are we siding ourselves up for? What are we setting ourselves up for? What are we leading into here? And here's Jesus' beautiful answer. Verse 28, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones. Take out Judas, add in Matthias. You'll sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Some of the first, like the Pharisee leaders, will be pushed out of seats of judgment and replaced by the latter, by the last, by Jesus' apostles. And then verse 29, this is not just for Peter. Notice who this is for, everyone who follows. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit exactly what that rich young ruler was looking for, eternal life. There was a time in my life when the cost of following Jesus felt especially steep. A point in my life when it felt like my life would be happier if I were going this direction. My life would be easier if I were going that direction. My life would be wealthier if I were going that direction. My life would be fill in the blank better if I were going in that direction. But Jesus... I've left behind some comforts. What then will I have? 
And in that season, I began combing through Matthew's gospel. And I began paying attention to the promises of Jesus here in Matthew's gospel. I wrote down ten promises specifically that I found in Matthew's gospel. I won't tell you all of them, but I'll tell you that this is one of them. I wrote down ten promises that I found in Matthew's gospel on a piece of paper. And every single morning for the next month, I would take that piece of paper and I would pray over it. Every single day, Lord, it feels like I have sacrificed. Now what? And I just needed to keep on praying over these words. And I just needed to keep on hearing Jesus' promises ministering to my soul. And I can tell you from a little bit of my own personal testimony. When we make sacrifices that feel sacrificial. And we set them next to the promises of Jesus. I'm not saying it makes sacrifices easy, but I am saying over time, as we hear what Jesus is saying to us and we begin to believe it and cherish it as our own, it makes sacrifices worth it. Which leads us to Jesus' conclusion. There are many That the world would regard as the first and foremost Pharisee-like leaders. Rich, young rulers. Folks that the world would say, they got it all. Jesus comes from heaven to tell us there are many that you would say by worldly standards. They're at number one. They're first place. They're powerful. They're influential. They're happy. And Jesus warns, there are so many who look like they've got it all and they will be last. But Jesus promises the last shall be first. And on what basis does Jesus promise this? In part on the basis of the fact of this is how things will be in his kingdom. Who says so? Jesus says so. But in part, we might add as well, on what basis does Jesus tell us this? As Christians, we can hear these promises and realize Jesus says this on the basis of his own life. If we go back to one of the earliest Christian poems, one of the earliest Christian praise songs, a passage that we spent last year's Advent season looking at, We read this about the life of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But is that the end of the story? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, this is why Jesus can so confidently look at children in the kingdom of heaven and say, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. People the world will look at and say, what's your net worth, kid? Zero? And Jesus smiles and says, great in the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus can confidently look at a rich young ruler who seems to have it all and invite him to sell everything that he has to let go of it all in order to live for what? Something greater. Jesus can look him in the eye and say, I too might be compared to a rich young ruler who once had it all including equality with God himself. But here's the route that I took to that which is truly life. I humbled myself. He didn't give 10% of himself. He gave 100% of himself to the way of the Lord. And in giving it all away, Jesus says, this is not the end. It's not something that leaves you crushed and chewed up and left by the gutter forever. No, this way of humbling yourself is, the, is only a prelude to that which is truly life. It's only a prelude to true glory. This is why Jesus can look at the sacrifices of his disciples. This is why Jesus can put in the balance everything that you've sacrificed in the pathway of following him and say, compared with the surpassing glory of that which is to come, all that you've sacrificed is truly worth it. This is why Jesus can say it. Because... He himself knows what it is to give up a home in heaven. Proximity to his father, we might say. All the possessions of the world. Because he clothed himself in poverty. Because he clothed himself in humility. He now can look at the poorest, the humblest, the weakest. He can look at the richest, the most powerful, those who have it all. And he can look at disciples who have given up so much and say, let me tell you the truth. Many who right now would be ranked first will be last. But good news, good news. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. The last, even those who have made themselves the least, shall be first. And God gives grace to the humble. You see, although many who are first shall be last, take it from Jesus, the last shall be first. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. And although God is opposed to the proud, the Lord showers His favor on the humble. So take it from Jesus, giving up everything in order to follow him 